Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Now on Food FM, you're listening to Bread and Butter with Caroline Kenyon. Caroline and her guests make sense of the world through food, from politics to farming, making and cooking. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Hello, this is Caroline Kenyon and I am delighted to present our latest edition of Bread and Butter which is the most self-indulgent radio opportunity I can think of. It's my chance to talk to almost anybody I like to talk to in the world of food. And today we're really honoured to have Nathan Mervold, Renaissance man, I think I should describe him as, who has a stellar background in science, but also a remarkable career in the world of food. Now, some may say that there is a very direct link between science and food. Now, for those of us, and I include myself, who have a very shaky background in science, I'm not sure that I quite see it, but I can take the argument. Hello there, Nathan. How lovely to have you with us. Well, it's lovely to be here. Now, the occasion of our meeting, and let me just establish exactly where you are in the United States, Nathan. Uh, I'm in the Seattle area. So Nathan is in Seattle, and I'm in England, and we are here to discuss his latest oeuvre, by which I mean a mighty tome called Modernist Pizza. So welcome to the world, Modernist Pizza, an amazing um, book that has been, I should suggest, some years in gestation. So let's just um, start at the beginning, Nathan. You do have a fascinating and very eclectic curriculum vitae. How do you describe yourself on your passport? <laughs> it's always a question. You know, do, I, do I say cookbook author or physicist or inventor? And I've used each of those my passport at one point or another. I'm sure it raises an intrigued eyebrow at passport control. So, yeah, well, look, somebody's got to do those jobs. <laughs> exactly. Well, and, and I'm sure you give them, you know, a, a little moment of interest in what is possibly quite a dull day. So I'd love to understand, where does the origin of your passion for both science and food come from? Is this something back in your family background? Uh, no, it's just something that's been there for as long as I can remember. Uh, my mother says that when I was two years old, I told her I wanted to be a scientist. Not that I really knew what that meant at two, but still, it's telling. I remember as a kid, I saw an old black and white episode of Doctor Who, on, which is, was on public TV in the U.S., and there was a scene where someone says to the doctor, Are you some kind of scientist? And he says, Sir, I'm every kind of scientist. And I thought that sounded so cool. 
<laughs> That's so, fantastic. You, know, I, you had the, the, the courage to watch Doctor Who. I was too cowardly. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so I've tried to be every kind of scientist or uh, maybe not every, but uh, science is a set of procedures and, and language for helping you understand difficult problems. Uh, some of the difficult problems of food uh, are very amenable to that. Yes, that's a very interesting way of putting it. So just, just tell me a little bit more about the family background, Nathan. So were either your, your parents involved in science? Nope, no. Um, my mother uh, was a very successful swimsuit model. Oh, how interesting. <laughs> yes. Um, Sports Illustrated didn't start their swimsuit issue until... 1964. If they had done it in 1954, chances are mom would have been in it. Um, she was, uh, uh, ultimately she was an exclusive model for Janssen Swimsuits, which is a company that exists to this day. Then uh, later she became a school teacher. And in part she became a school teacher because she wanted to get me into uh, what we here in the US would call private schools. Um, and so she became a teacher in the schools, basically to get a break on the tuition. Well, how very admirable and uh, and focused in her ambition for her her little son. So, and tell me where food fitted in in your family. What what kind of food were you eating as a child? Who was doing the cooking? <laughs> well, when I was a child, uh, initially mom was doing the cooking, or uh, my grandmother. Uh, my mother grew up on a farm, and so she had a very basic farm sort of view of cuisine. But uh, then when I was nine years old, I discovered cookbooks at the library. And I checked out lots of cookbooks and I announced to my mother I was gonna cook Thanksgiving dinner all by myself. And uh, I did. Did you have um, brothers not, and sisters, Nathan? I had one brother. Older or younger? Younger. Yes. And uh, I co-opted him to help me with a fair amount of, of the dinner. But uh, sort of from that point onward, I always cooked for big family occasions. That's remarkable, from the age of nine. I imagine that made you quite popular, you know, in sort of high school years, if you were able to cook, that you could do really lovely food for your friends and they all wanted to come round to your house. Um, sort of. Uh, it, now, it turns out I was really good at school. And as a result, I was, um, I, I skipped a bunch of grades. So I was a lot younger in uh, high school than, um, than most of my peers. And uh, that made me perhaps not the most socially popular. But I did cook big dinners for my, my friends in high school. That is a fact. Yes, I can identify with that, actually. I was, I was young for my year at school. I skipped a year because I learned to read early. And there's a sort of uh, a slight disconnect between one's sort of academic achievement and one's emotional maturity. I was certainly very immature. Um, and that did make it a little difficult on the, on the kind of social side. So I, I, I do. Yeah, and, and people would complain about that to my mother and say, oh, you should hold him back so that this would all be better somehow. But, you know, I was never the most immature kid in class. There's always <laughs> there was always some kid who was the, <laughs> No, absolutely. There was always some kid who was the correct age, who was way more immature. Well, so I'm very I would say, well, what, what about Joe here? You know, are you going to hold Joe back? 
Oh, no, we so never you, do that. Did you carry on cooking when you were at university and then when you, you started in the working world? Uh, I, I did. I, uh, I went to graduate school first at UCLA and then at Princeton. And uh, I think for my first, uh, no, my second year there, I baked bread, oh, all my own bread and decided I wouldn't buy bread for a year, which is great in a way. It's also not the most convenient way to feed yourself if you're trying to get a PhD in physics, which ultimately I did get. Yes, and, and what was it do you think that you loved about cooking so much? Was it, was it the results? Was it the process? Was it the therapeutic aspect of it? Uh, well, pretty much all of it. One thing that's true is that many of my other projects uh, were very long-term projects. Like, for example, my education that, you know, I, I got two master's degrees in it. PhD and a bachelor's degree, all in different subjects. Whereas food is not generally a long-term project. I mean, maybe you start a day ahead of time, but not much more than that. And once it's done, not only do you get to eat it, but you get to share it with other people. So I, I thought food was great from just about every perspective. Yes, I can completely see that. It'd be a very, very welcome contrast, wouldn't it? Now, one thing that there's so many things that intrigue me about your your story, Nathan, but I know that you came to Cambridge and you worked with Stephen Hawking. And I was um, privileged enough to um, do my undergraduate degree at Gombling Keys College, Cambridge, where Stephen was a fellow. So yep. I often used to see him around the college. How was it working with the great Stephen Hawking? Well, I think the first thing is, if you work closely with Stephen, it's really hard to feel sorry for yourself. You know, you might be thinking, oh, God, I've got a bad day, and God, this, everything is miserable. And you think, wait a minute, I can walk. <laughs> you know, I, I can do all of these things. And here's this man that had horrendous physical challenges, and it didn't stop him. And not only did it not stop him from going forward, Stephen was generally a fairly jovial guy. He loved to tell jokes. Uh, he had a great sense of humor. Uh, so it wasn't just that, oh, he's surviving his condition, which of course he did, but he was thriving. Uh, despite it, I'm sure, he used to tell me it was actually an advantage. And I'd say, come on, Stephen, really? And he'd say, well, he didn't have to go to any of the boring uh, committee meetings that he'd otherwise have to do. Um, uh, as a, a senior academic. I said, well, I'm not sure that's worth it. <laughs> he also said that it helped him in his, uh, in his work because he couldn't write things down. And so he had to boil all intellectual problems down into a very small set of things he could keep in his head. And I can see how that discipline could help you uh, but only if you had an incredible head, basically, like his. Very, very interesting. What I, I mean, I do, I feel so honoured that I was, you know, I even breathed the same air that he did. And um, my goodness, how extraordinary that you worked so closely with him. Now, something I'm really intrigued to ask you, Nathan, because I got to Cambridge in 1982. I'm not sure which year you were in Cambridge, but I have to say that the food scene in Cambridge was not great. What did you make of it? <laughs> you that is over, a damn fact. <laughs> tell me, tell me, what were your thoughts? Well, it was, the food scene was, well, I don't think there was a food scene. You know, there were uh, 
a, a few restaurants. There were several restaurants that were really out of the reach of a student, but I still managed to go there and they weren't that great. Um, and then there were cheaper ones that were really, really not that great. Stephen I think I might know which ones they are. <laughs> Stephen or would what? take me to the, the high table. I was a member of the combination room at Keys. Ah. And we'd have these dinners that were very long, but they weren't all that great. It, it, it was, uh, I, I had an expression for the meat that was BBR, um, boiled beyond recognition. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And the same with the vegetables. But yeah. Some... And uh, once, because I, I would, when I would go with Stephen to these things, I'd have to cut up his meal and help feed him. I remember at one point, the meat they served was really tough, and I was struggling with the knife, and I finally cut this piece, but it kind of let go, and I rolled a roast potato down almost the entire length of that long table. <laughs> and of course, everyone wheels to look at me, and I went over to Stephen, and I said, um, sorry, but I've just gone bowling with your roast potatoes. <laughs> oh, wonderful. No, I can just imagine it. I just, I just, I do remember those rather, shall we politely put them crispy roast potatoes. But um, no, many, many <coughs> memories of that dining hall. Um, one of the great things about Keys, however, was the wine cellars, because it was such, or is still, a rich college. The wines were yes. fantastic. Yes, they, they had decent wine, and... Uh, I remember that there was a big feast that Stephen invited me to. It was a feast in honor of Dr. So-and-so. I forget the name. And so people are all wearing these crazy graduate, I mean, even more gowns than normal and satin sashes on their gowns and all this stuff that meant something to them anyway, not to me. And at one point I leaned over to Stephen and I said, you have to point out the guest of honor to me. And Stephen starts laughing. And of course, his laugh, particularly at the time, made people alarmed. They thought he was choking to death or something. I said, no, no, it's okay. And so Stephen tells me the, the guy died in like the 1500s. Wonderful. And I said, well, 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 I don't know the name. Why are we feasting in his honor? It's not like, there were many famous scientists and scholars at Keys, and I knew what they did. So I said, well, what did this guy do? And Stephen laughed and he said, well, you don't understand. He endowed a feast in his name. <laughs> Brilliant. Much better to be remembered for your feast than for your scientific discoveries, perhaps. A apparently so. I thought it was yeah. quite funny. So tell me, Nathan, I, I know that you, you just, I might get the chronology wrong, but after your very long and varied periods of study. You were, I believe, Chief Technological Officer at Microsoft, is that correct? Yes, that's right. I, I, I took a leave of absence from working with Stephen to go work on a software project with some friends. It was supposed to only last a couple months. And uh, I never wound up coming back from that leave of absence because I started a company and then Microsoft acquired the company. Yes, and did you enjoy your time? in that world. Oh, yes, I, I absolutely did. You know, it was an exciting point in time when this uh, computer technology, which heretofore had been really the domain of scientists or 
sort of IT professionals inside companies, but only a very few companies could afford a computer, to this device that we all use now. And uh, it was, uh, was very exciting being at Microsoft during that time when all that happened. I can imagine it must have been tremendous and such a great sense of um, energy and you know, groundbreaking invention must have been wonderful. Yep. However, and this is the important however, I think it was when you were at Microsoft that you decided to go to Paris to La Varenne. Is that correct? Yes, I, I decided that I, I did all this cooking, but I never actually had any formal instruction in cooking. So why not go to cooking school? So I convinced Bill Gates to give me a leave of absence so I could. And then I wound up working uh, one night a week for two years at a restaurant in Seattle uh, as a stagiaire uh, so that I could uh, uh, get, get into the school, basically. What? That sounds amazing. How dedicated of you. And what was it that made you choose La Varenne? Well, there were two schools uh, at the time. There was a La Varenne school and there was an Escoffier school. And the one I really wanted to go to was the Escoffier school because... It was, the instruction was like 20 hours a week. It was at the Ritz Hotel. It was very nice, but it took six months. Whereas La Varenne was an intensive program that took six weeks. <laughs> that is remarkable. And Bill wouldn't let me have six months off, so I had to take the shorter one. Oh, Not that there was anything wrong with La Varenne. It just, it was going to cooking school. I knew it was going to be like jumping into the deep end of the swimming pool not knowing you could swim. And uh, uh, it would have been an easier transition if I had taken a place that was more uh, relaxed about it. But I, I went to the hard place. I can imagine. And were you taught by the great Anne Willen? I was. Oh, lucky you. I'm, I'm, I feel very privileged that I know her. I think she's the most wonderful lady. She is. Uh, she is. A, a couple of years ago, she came up to dinner in our lab and I actually got to cook for her after all these years. And she had not forgotten. Oh. <laughs> yeah. now, what do you, for those who don't know, well, Anne, Anne is, she is a legend, a truly wonderful woman. But her, if you had to create a strap line for her, you would say she was the English woman who set up the school in Paris and taught the French how to cook. And she's, I think, been given the Légion d'honneur for her services to French yes. cooking. She has many, many honours. What on earth do you cook for the great Anne Willen? Well, uh, when she came, uh, we had an event for uh, some of the uh, best female chefs in the United States. We cooked a 30-course uh, tasting menu. So it was quite a few things. And 30 it was, courses. It was mostly things that we didn't do at the school. Um, it was mostly this modernist stuff that uh, uh, other people and I developed later. And how long did it take you to prepare 30 courses? How many days were you chopping oh, and slicing you and do, freezing? There's a couple things you have to do a, uh, like a week ahead of time. There's a, a dish uh, that we make that is a, a pastrami. Uh, and you have to start the meat curing like uh, a week ahead of time. But uh, but most things are just the the day before you do a bunch of prep and then day of you're cooking. 
I'm sure you are cooking. My goodness, I should think you probably bring your your scientific mental discipline to bear on the timetable because timing is all, isn't it? Yes, it, it, timing is particularly important in long tasting menus because if you have a gap between courses, then it's sort of like breaking the spell. <laughs> you know, you people start looking at their phone, they all oh, got what time it is, is it? And, oh, I got to go do this tomorrow. And it, it's very easy to lose their attention. I can imagine. You've got to keep the momentum going. Yeah, so you need to have, um, we do a course every five minutes. Just boom, 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 boom. So long as the courses remain sufficiently interesting, it also helps if you have um, (laughs) a professional audience. When we cook for civilians, uh, we, uh, uh, by civilians, I mean people who aren't in the culinary business, we tend to cook a smaller course of like 12 courses. But... uh, is that because you know, the, the, their taste buds are less attuned? Oh, their taste buds are less attuned. They're just less used to be, making it big of themselves. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, uh, if you're a professional chef, when you go, when you travel somewhere, you typically have a tasting menu. So you t- taste a whole uh, cross-section of what the chef there is doing. It's an important thing to learn from. And so you're used to it. It's it's part of what you do. And also, many of these chefs would also uh, offer tasting menus like that in their restaurant. Yes. So, uh, so for people that are food critics, food writers, uh, and chefs, having a few extra courses and showcasing more techniques and more variation in what you do is probably more important than getting them to bed early. Yes, that all makes complete sense. And now I want to to take you on a that unusual journey that goes from a 30-course tasting menu to pizza. Tell me about the origins of this book, which I feel the word magisterial was invented for. <laughs> so tell me, tell me the 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 genesis of modernist pizza. Well, after we did wrote a book called Modernist Cuisine, which is a cross-section of all modern cooking techniques. That was my first big cookbook. It's a four, well, six volume really book that covers all sorts of co- uh, modern uh, cooking techniques uh, sort of across the board. After that, we decided to do bread. Bread is a very ancient thing and most of the attention of the bread world had been captured by the artisanal bread movement. So whereas there were plenty of chefs doing this modern style of cooking, uh, when we started Modernist Cuisine, there weren't plenty of bread people doing modernist bread, but we thought the topic was um, well positioned for it. So we did a big book on bread. And one of the chapters in that bread book was on pizza because Pizza is a kind of a bread. Virtually all pizza crusts are a yeast-risen thing, which might as well be a bread dough. So uh, that got us interested in pizza. I decided, well, let's do a book just on pizza, which is uh, arguably the world's single most popular dish or the single most popular imported dish of any, um, if you like. It's in almost every country of the world. And pretty much wherever it goes, it morphs into local versions. So people don't 
even necessarily think of it as an imported dish. In Chicago, they think of Chicago-style pizza, or New York thinks of New York-style pizza. Um, so there's a lot of interesting things going for it. It was also full of mythology. So there's people who believe they couldn't make great pizza dough unless they had the exact water of Naples. Or I read a thing recently about someone who sets their water. They, don't, they use their own water, but they set it at the temperature of the water of Naples. Or a whole variety of other things that are the kind of mythology that typically surrounds uh, food if people don't do sort of scientifically rigorous experiments and actually figure out what's going on. That's so interesting. So what you're really saying is that, that pizza is now a universal food. And are you oh, saying absolutely. that it doesn't belong to Italy? It doesn't belong to America anymore? Belong is, is a funny thing. You know, the pizza as we know it absolutely started in Naples uh, in the 19th century. And it left Naples when people left Naples. There was a great diaspora of folks from Naples where... Uh, a third of the population of Naples got up and emigrated somewhere um, within about a 20-year period. Uh, so uh, it absolutely started there, but if it had just stayed in Naples, it would be some great dish that you could only get in Naples. And you know, if you throw a dart at a map of Italy, you'll hit some village or some region where you can go and there's some great food, delicious food, that exists only there. It's just, it's, it's a very Italian sort of a thing. And partly it's because uh, uh, Italy didn't become a country until the 19th century, so a lot of uh, food traditions were very well established, and they weren't Italian traditions, they were a tradition of Campania, the region Naples in, or Tuscany, or Umbria, or some other region. So uh, Naples invented it, but it was the rest of the world that, uh, that made it uh, what it is today. In particular, the United States, if it, the popularity of pizza in the U.S. happened long before pizza was popular outside of Naples in Italy or in Europe. So it's a funny thing that after leaving Naples, it ultimately... Uh, reinvaded Europe and, and conquered it. Then in the 1990s, people in uh, Naples decided, hey, that's their version of pizza. Our version is the authentic version. And so they started this movement to have true Neapolitan pizza. And so there was a second diaspora of pizza leaving Naples. But that second diaspora wouldn't have worked if the first one hadn't already established it. Yes. So it's very interesting as a cultural phenomenon. Whose is it? Well, it's got some of everybody's. Yes, much. I understand that. And in a way, it's a means by which you can tell cultural history, global cultural history over the last 100, 150 years. Oh, absolutely. The great exodus of people from Naples happened because of politics and cholera. Uh, politics, because Naples had been the capital city of a whole kingdom called the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies that was basically all of southern Italy and Sicily. Well, it went from being a capital to being a regional city, and that took a lot of income out of, away. 
Then it had a terrible cholera epidemic, which caused the, a huge public works project called the Risorimento. That public works project displaced a lot of these people who left, meaning they tore down the slums to, to rebuild the sewer system. In the 19th century, when you tore down slums, no one really would think of saying, oh, let's build some other place for the poor people to go. So it, it, it was this combination of politics and cholera and economic factors that caused so much emigration from uh, southern Italy. Yes, and therefore a, a diaspora of pizza makers. Yeah, it, um, pizza is uh, what I like to call a poorly documented cuisine. The uh, first pizza recipe that we can find in print is in a French book. The second one is in uh, English language uh, books and uh, periodicals. At what period? Uh, oh, that's um, late 19th century. Uh, there's, uh, meanwhile, it really is not documented. It, it doesn't appear in print in Italy until the 1920s, and the really big exposition of pizza was not until 1930. So, uh, it was overlooked because in its context, it was street food eaten by poor people. And most of what recipe books at the time focused on was fancy food eaten by rich people. Yes. Um, and so as a result, it, it, the only way to have pizza leave Italy wasn't as a recipe, it was as a pizzolo, as a person who made pizza or a pizza fan, a person who demanded pizza. As those two hypothetical folks left and found themselves settled in some new country, which we traveled about 100,000 miles to write the book, and that included going to Buenos Aires and Sao Paulo, uh, both of which have major Italian populations, and both of which have very distinct pizza cultures. When you say distinct, I mean distinct as in different and separate? Absolutely. Yeah, pizza in Sao Paulo is mostly super thin crust, super th sparse amount of ingredients on top, and it's a white tablecloth food. We ate at the first pizzeria in Sao Paulo to open for lunch. It was unheard of before this one pizzeria opened. And it actually became a tradition in Sao Paulo for Sunday dinner. So in the way a, a British family might have a Sunday roast, the, in Sao Paulo, they'd go out for a Sunday pizza. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Buenos Aires, most of the famous pizzerias have a large stand-up area where you eat your pizza with a knife and fork on a little metal plate while standing. And it's a, you buy it a slice at a time. And the Folks of Buenos Aires seem to have been obsessed with answering the question, is it possible to have too much cheese on a pizza? <laughs> because, oh my God, do they put a lot of cheese on their pizza. So you'd get this single slice would come out on a little metal plate and you'd see a crust and then it would be like you dumped a whole thing of uh, fondue on the plate or some other, there's just melted cheese everywhere. Um, I'm sure it's delicious, but perhaps not best for your arteries. Well, each is delicious in its own way. If you have a very strong, uh, well, if you have a narrow mind about pizza, then 
Uh, I'm sure you can find lots to, to dislike, but uh, there's something pretty special about the super thin white tablecloth pizza, but there's also something thin about the one that's, you know, got two centimeters of melted cheese oozing all top on top of it. No, I can completely get that. So, Nathan, tell me, what do you think the future holds for pizza? You know, here we are, we're, we're in a very health-aware environment. You know, people are worried about gluten-free, they're worried about carbs and all this sort of thing. But Well, equally... we also have gone through the worst period of time for small independent restaurants of any point in our lifetimes. Absolutely. It's um, terrible. Now, generally, uh, I mean, there, I'm sure there are pizzerias that have suffered. Uh, generally, pizza has been saved by the fact that takeout pizza is also a thing. And so people will go and take out pizza from uh, their local pizzeria with less of a concern about it than if they were trying to go to a steak and chops place and do takeout, for example. Yeah, partially that's because pizza survives the takeout process a little better, but it's also something that's kind of always there for pizza. It's always a fraction of the business of pizza's takeout. So uh, that has helped, but it's been a, a trying time. You know, I, I think the average quality of pizza could go way up. <laughs> it, it's a lot of people love pizza, uh, but sounds silly to say, but the average pizza is only of average quality. <laughs> and uh, I think it's, if you compare, say, a pizza and a souffle. Souffle is really hard to make. A lot of restaurants won't make them because they're hard to make. But as a result, if you have a place that's got a souff that serves souffles, they're usually done fairly well. Because why would you go to a bad one, right? You, you could just not offer it instead. Um, with pizza, I'm there are plenty of place, places that offer a pizza that I think could use a lot of improvement. It, it's very surprising to me how many people I met in the process of making the book who retired from some other line of work and opened a pizzeria uh, without having ever made a pizza prior to deciding to do that. <laughs> um, they love the idea of it. Well, and look, I, I, yeah, I can see why they love the idea of it. But uh, I, I think that what we have going forward is more variety in what we eat and better quality. And you know, over the last 20 years, I think we could, or take uh, Cambridge. Cambridge from the 1980s, uh, I think I was there in 83, so just a year after you. Um, well, I was still there. Uh, well, there you go. See, we, we should have met then. We could have um, walked past each other. But the food in Cambridge, and in fact, the food in all of the UK, uh, I would say is enormously better. And it's enormously better sort of at every level, including the variety of foods. I, I think that's kind of the key thing is that people actually like variety. And when something new comes in, like when sushi places started opening in the United States, well, initially, there's a lot of suspicion. People say, oh, my God, you can eat raw fish. That's disgusting. It caught on. And as a result, there's a sushi place in, uh, you know, nearly every mall in America. And I'm sure that sushi is widely available in the UK as well. It, uh, and it went widely more now than 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and the same thing is happening with pizza, whereas pizza initially in the United States, the most popular pizzas were 
the chain style pizzas. Interestingly, uh, pizza was the first franchised fast food in the United States. That is um, interesting. Uh, Shakey's Pizza started uh, franchising in 1952, and McDonald's uh, or other hamburger stand places or fried chicken or other dishes weren't until much later, actually. But anyway, I, I think that uh, variety and quality are the two things that, uh, that we're going to see more of going forward. Well, I look forward to it very much. Nathan, sadly, our conversation is coming to an end. So I'm just going to end on one more question for you. What is your favorite pizza topping? <laughs> you know, I don't have a single favorite topping. Part of that is because I have experienced some of the, the best pizzolos in the world uh, in both Naples and outside of Naples in Italy and in the United States. Or I've had pizzas that if you asked, if if I had to order it up front, I never would have ordered it because it would have a bunch of ingredients. I would say, how the hell could you make something good out of that? But I've been blown away by how in actual fact, the different flavors, textures combined to make something magical. Uh, so, you know, if I'm typically, if, if I just, if you and I walked into a random pizza place together, I would probably order a margarita or something fairly simple to start. But then, you know, if there are some creative pizzas, I might, I might go there. I think that is a lovely note to end on, Nathan. I think that what you're saying is that magic can happen on top of a pizza. And I think you've woven some magic in telling an amazing story of your life through science and food. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Well, thank you too. It's been fun. You're listening to Bread and Butter with Caroline Kenyon. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.